I'm Cameron Silsby, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part four in the series, Practicing the Way, Naming Your Stage of Apprenticeship. A universal human experience is that of aging. From growing up in a home, to creating our own home, to wrestling with the reality of what our home is not, the task for the apprentice of Jesus is to use the experience of aging as an opportunity for spiritual formation. One stage theory paradigm called first half, second half is designed to do just that. We are currently in the series called Naming Your Stage of Apprenticeship. Drawing from paradigms in scripture and the wisdom from church history, we've been looking at different ways to map our apprenticeship to Jesus in order to understand what different stages and seasons of apprenticeship are calling us to do. This is called stage theory. Last week, Josh worked through the apprenticeship roadmap called The Critical Journey, uh, describing the reality of, of following Jesus as one that requires us to go through and not around challenging dark times in order to grow in maturity. This is a maturity from, uh, that grows from exercising freedom to choose where we want to go to submitting ourselves to the kingship of Jesus, our will and our desires, and to allow him to lead us to places w- we wouldn't have chosen ourselves. Tonight, we're going to be revisiting John chapter 21 in order to talk through a different concept of stage stage theory called first half, second half. Uh, We have tons of ground to cover, so let's just dive in. Are you guys ready? John chapter 21. Okay, starting in verse 18. Jesus, talking to Peter, says, Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if you want him... To, if, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Just to clarify if you were confused. Uh, this is the disciple who testifies to the things who wrote uh, and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If any, every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Okay, so we're going to be talking about this younger older paradigm that Jesus uh, tells uh, Peter about. But first, I want you to notice that this biography of Jesus ends with this story about Jesus and Peter. Not some grandiose miracle or in-depth theological teaching. No, just a conversation about what it looks like to go from younger to older as you follow Jesus. We think of this concept as paradigmatic, meaning uh, Jesus was talking to Peter, but it's also applicable to us as well. I find it fascinating that this biography is not Peter's own biography. This is John's. And yet John finds value enough in this discussion between Jesus and Peter to use it as the final story that concludes his biography. That's interesting. Jesus breaks down this paradigm of discipleship into two stages— When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, meaning you felt you were in charge of your life, making meaningful decisions for yourself. 
exercising your agency. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you uh, where you do not want to go. In other words, his faithfulness to Jesus would lead to a submission of his agency and, and his own death by crucifixion. He would follow in the example of his rabbi Jesus. This is the closest thing we get to a stage theory paradigm in the teachings of Jesus, and it's very basic. It's been called first half, second half, you know, focusing on the different halves of life. Uh, Ronald Rollheiser calls it essential discipleship and mature discipleship. And, And whatever we want to call it, the idea is that at some point in a person's life, there is a major shift, something that deeply changes us in our apprenticeship to Jesus. While the other stage theories we've covered, you know, the three ways and the critical journey, use certain language and and stages to help us as we mature, this stage theory uses the concept of aging as a way to understand and aid the maturation of our apprenticeship. So let's break down these stages, but before that happens, I need to make a, a couple of concessions. The first is to acknowledge that we are talking about aging in our church, which is almost entirely in the first half stage, uh, and, and it's not intentional. And, and as we go through this teaching, I, I think it'll become painfully obvious uh, what we're lacking because of this reality, but you guys are here, and we're really glad you're here, so uh, let's do this. Um, so there's probably some of us who are, that are transitioning from the first half to the second half, but the vast majority are not. That means as we talk through the second half stage, most of us are years, if not a decade or two away from reaching it. But this allows us to shape a new paradigm and expectation for aging as we follow Jesus. So pay attention to the explanation of both stages. Second concession, uh, which is one quite a bit more obvious, uh, I'm 31 years old, and I was talking to some friends this week about this teaching and told them it would be really convenient for me to be about 75 this Sunday uh, for this teaching. You know, then I could speak from like a fuller life experience, um, but clearly I am still 31 years old, and while for our church I may be fairly old, um, in the grand scheme of things, I'm not. (laughs) Thankfully, uh, the book I read this week in order to do this teaching is Sacred Fire by Ronald Rollheiser, who is in his 70s. Um, He's done a ton of studying theologically, uh, psychologically, anthropologically, in order to describe and teach this paradigm of stage theory. So go and grab this book. It's so good. So understand that this teaching is drawing from wisdom and experience and not just exclusively my own. I am not yet an expert in the second half stage, uh, but I can surely tell you what a guy said who seems to be. I would encourage you to pick up his book, read it for yourself, especially if you're in the second half stage or you think you're transitioning into it. It's seriously so good. Okay, so with all that said, let's start talking about what these stages are. The first half stage starts with our birth. If we are in a stable and solid family, we'll generally grow up happy, safe, and secure. We enjoy our home and our parents and don't see life as much of a struggle. If you grew up in a home that did not foster happiness, safety, and security, then then life will seem like a struggle. 
And while your disposition towards life will be different than somebody who grew up in a, in a healthy home, it will nonetheless motivate you towards a similar goal. And the goal of the first half stage starts to come into focus at puberty. And when puberty hits, uh, we are filled with an energy that, be, that begins to make our homes and parental authority feel constricting and stifling. Uh, you know, there's a lot more emotions, a lot more passion, and a lot more, like, attitude. Um, and this is energy that carries us into adulthood. It's the drive to establish for ourselves our own space of security and stability. Simply put, our own home. You know, a good childhood or traumatic one, there is a drive for us to create our own home. And this time of life is, is super critical because this energy can become destructive if not disciplined and focused. Parents and mentors speaking into a teenager's life is so valuable at this stage. Uh, with, with the energy present, it's really important to speak into their life wisdom and how to use their, their coming agency in adulthood and their energy well. So we eventually go outside the home to discover our, our identity and calling, you know, who we are and what we're going to do with our lives. This may look like going to school or beginning to find a steady job. You might still live with your parents or you may move out, but in either case, you are searching to create your own stable, safe environment, your own home. Ronald Rollheiser in Sacred Fire says it like this. This is a time of much longing and searching, searching for an identity, searching for acceptance, searching for a circle of friends, searching for intimacy, searching for someone to marry, searching for a vocation, searching for a career, searching for the right space to live. Searching for financial security and searching for something to give us substance and meaning. In a word, searching for a home. It's an interesting season of life because it's one filled with both wonderful, exciting possibilities and also fear and anxiety of making a wrong choice. There are potentially huge ramifications to what degree path you choose or person you date or whether to date at all, you know, what friends you have, etc. cetera. Uh, you are having to choose commitments, some of them permanent, and while not easy, it is necessary for creating your own home. And all of this energy and all of this agency, the ability to make choices for ourselves often give, gives rise in our culture to the fear of missing out. Commitment becomes difficult because we have unparalleled access to each other's lives, other people's lives, strangers' lives through social media. We become keenly aware that if we make one decision, we are saying no to countless other options. Choosing to go down a certain degree path, but look at all those people so happy in other careers or no career at all. Uh, thinking, about committed, uh, thinking about committing to a relationship or a, a friendship, look, look, all of those interesting people, attractive people on your social media feed that you wouldn't have time or availability for. You could rent an apartment or buy a house in a certain neighborhood, but look at all of these pictures of all the beautiful neighborhoods people live in with more aesthetic appeal and more convenience. The fear of missing out is often a paralyzing force. But whether you are making commitments or not, you are having to deal with a tremendous amount of energy. It looks like the ability to recover quickly from an all-nighter, a strong sexual tension, a deeply held passion. It can also look like passionate and blind idealism, uh, partaking in a party lifestyle, a profound struggle with sexual sin. In short, a lack of discipline. You know, this energy isn't bad. Remember, it's the catalyst for us becoming adults but it can be used unwisely. 
uh, one other interesting facet of this energy is that it has the ability to help us cope with wounds uh, and trauma from our childhood, at least to a certain degree. It gives us a sort of resiliency to function even at a high level with things that would otherwise weigh us down. More on that in a moment. To summarize the first half, Rawlheiser says this, what we all want at the end of the day is home, ease, rest, someone to be comfortable with, some place to be comfortable in, a home, eternal rest. But this is not easy, especially for a young person who, who has just left home and is unsure of where and with whom he or she will again find home. Now, something that's important to understand is that this stage is part of the natural aging process, but it can last anywhere from your 20s to your 50s, especially for millennials who are starting uh, careers, getting married, having kids, buying homes later than all previous generations, in part at least because of the Great Recession. The first half stage you know, doesn't have a list of commitments or accomplishments that show that you're done with it, as in you know, you've just turned 30, you're either married or have made a, the decision for lifelong celibacy, you have a, an entry-level job in your chosen career field, uh, and you've saved up for a down payment. That, that's not the case. Instead, this stage is focused on just making long-term permanent commitments in order to be moving towards creating a home, a place of security and stability, whatever that ends up looking like. And once you've made all your commitments, you arrive at the second half stage, or so you would think, but not quite. And it's not automatic whether you move to the second half stage or not. First, there's a transition period and you are presented with a choice. Move towards the second half or grasp at what is familiar and attractive from the first half stage. So let's talk about the tra transition period. So after you've created this home and, and you've made significant commitments, you then keep chugging away. Maybe for years, things are going great. But at some point, all that energy begins to fade. You start noticing a creeping tiredness, something that is exasperated by all the commitments you've made. Again, not bad commitments, in fact, very rewarding ones oftentimes, but ones that demand emotional energy. So commitments like marriage, parenting, friends, work, even while nothing big is going wrong can start to become a drag. The energy that once was so explosive that you needed concerted effort to discipline and, and control is now in short supply. And over time, this can lead to uh, disappointment, uh, a sort of disillusionment about what life could have been. All, you know, the potential of life and what it has actually ended up being. And on the outside looking in, someone might think things look great. But for you, there is an ache that the home you've created cannot address. The youthful energy that once helped cover up the wounds of trauma is no longer there to help you cope. You may experience feelings of anger, resentment, bitterness, feelings of having been given the short end of the stick. You know, anxiety and depression may become a new struggle or come back with a vengeance if you've already struggled with it in the past. And again, from the outside, everything may look fine. And you may think you should be fine, but something has changed. And this is the kicker. While you may get older, you may choose to opt out of the second half stage, out of pursuing what Rollheiser calls mature discipleship. You, you may give in to the destructive lie that what you need to experience is a sort of second honeymoon of passion by getting a new career, a new spouse, a new family. 
or you allow the vast, sinister industry of distraction to wash over you, numbing you from the ache that is present. You petrify, uh, failing to attend to your commitments properly and failing to acknowledge the ache. This is, quite frankly, a hard time. Oftentimes, it seems like everything is fine, but there is an awareness of your brokenness, uh, of, of death, of your mistakes, missed opportunities, of, of life that cannot be fixed by having a home. It just isn't enough. After reading uh, Sacred Fire and allowing it to kind of marinate in my mind for a day or two, uh, I realized that I'm, I'm in this transition period. I can pinpoint the time that I first felt my energy fail to return to full force, like I first felt old. Um, I'm going to school, uh, you know, I'm, I'm learning about something I love, I'm doing my job here, which is challenging and exciting and something that I prayed and prepared for years of my life to do. My marriage has been in the best place it's ever been uh, through doing some hard work on our part in our individual counseling. We have a beautiful daughter that I really enjoy being around, and we have another one on the way. It's been a good season of life. And yet, about a year and a half ago, after a couple hard weeks of of redoing the floors in our house, uh, my energy just really never came back, never fully came back. I'm still tired from that. (laughs) I told Hannah a bit ago that I do not like going to school anymore. I'm tired of it. And I'm a person who loves school. She was really surprised. Some of you are like, that's what's wrong with you. I know, but I love it. I love the pain. Or I did, at least. I don't know what's happening now. There's an ache in my soul that the best date night or the best family adventure or the joy of having another child on the way cannot fully meet. In moments, for sure, but the ache comes back. You know, all of this has been going on coupled with a recent uh, family development of a situation that's brought old wounds from childhood back into focus. And, and, and my temptation in all of this is less to desperately try to go on a second honeymoon, whatever that looks like. That sounds exhausting, too. Uh, but it's to numb myself with entertainment. It's to be less present to Hannah or Posey, to just try to avoid what's going on. And thankfully, Jesus has been slowly but methodically working to address all of this in my season of life. Uh, But reading Rollheiser's book helped me to see that this is more of a normative experience, you know, giving me a a paradigm and language that I didn't have before this last week. There isn't something uniquely wrong or or sinful with me. At least it's not this. You know, that's not why I'm going through all of this. In fact, this season presents an opportunity, albeit a difficult one, to grow in my apprenticeship to Jesus that I didn't have before. And at this point, if you and I should choose, we, we can begin the journey of the second half stage, the mature discipleship. It begins with what one psychologist calls active acceptance. Responding to the ache of life can manifest as a deep anger you indulge in at how your life has turned out, an anger at God, your spouse, your family, Or it can look like cynicism, a scoff at any good that could come from life and a decision to sit it out. Instead, you readily consume entertainment and indulge your senses through eating, materialism, and sex in order to get what you think you've earned. But active acceptance looks at your life and what it is not and recommits to the commitments you've already made. You recommit to the authority of King Jesus, allowing him to define what the good life 
looks like. Anticipating his return to put all the broken things right. You recommit yourself to your marriage or to your deep friendships, choosing to be faithful, not because of what the other person brings, you know, as in good feelings or good times, but out of self-sacrificial love. You recommit to your family, choosing to devote a significant portion of that limited energy to your kids in order to be present with them. Then the urge of comparison slowly starts to fade. Fantasizing for a better life starts to fade. And you choose to become more present to the life you have in the here and now. You accept it for what it is and what it is not, allowing you to enjoy it much more deeply. And this is where the deepest shift comes. Our lives become more deeply submitted to the will of God. And the challenge goes from getting our lives together from the first half stage and becomes how to give our lives away. We become centered on the other rather than on creating for ourselves a home. And coming to this place of acceptance is not without its challenges. Rollheiser speaks of, you know, the prodigal son is resonating with the first half stage, whereas the prodigal's older brother, you know, with the anger and the bitterness and the resentment of the prodigal as the struggles in the second half stage. He also notes this, I thought was clever. Someone once quipped that we spend the first half of our lives struggling with the sixth sixth commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, and the second half of our lives struggling with the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill. (laughs) And so while the second half has its own different struggles than the first half, it is also where the profound fruit of spiritual formation becomes very evident, where the years of faithfulness to Jesus and your commitments shapes your character, who you are, in such a way that your impact in the lives of others, families, friends, co-workers, is felt. We'll talk in a bit about what that can look like. But to summarize these two views, the first half, abundance of energy, and then learning how to discipline and do discipline and agency well. You're creating stability and security. You're, You're creating your home, and you're working to get your life together. The second half, not enough energy, acknowledging the ache of what life is not, recommitment and active acceptance, and then giving your life away. Let's talk now about what this all means for you and I. Uh, Stage theory is a helpful guide in order for us to avoid certain pitfalls and, and getting stuck and also having an awareness in order to intentionally partner with God in what He's doing in our lives in a particular season. So I want to give a warning and encouragement for the first half stage, for those in the transition, and those in the second half stage. Remember, if you're still in the first half stage, listen up, because the transition that can lead to the second half stage is coming. Mark my words. For those of you in the first half stage, those working to get your lives together or to create your own home, let's start with a warning. Our culture is designed to keep you in the first half stage. Whether it's social media feeding the fear of missing out or the glorification of what's called the Peter Pan syndrome, which is, you know, the desire and the practice of a responsibility-free life, you know, trying to stay young forever, living with no commitments and able to do what you want when you want. Our culture is wired to be commitment-phobic, and commitment is the most critical ingredient to making a home for yourself. But this is where the rubber meets the road. 
by practicing non-commitment, and by that I mean not making or keeping commitments over and over and over again, you are actually committing to flakiness, to immaturity and shallowness. And I know that might sound harsh, and I get that, you know, commitment is one of our hobby horses here at Van City, but I think for good reason. You know, I'm reminded of uh, the story from the biography uh, of Jesus that Matthew wrote of two different people approaching Jesus. Both seemed uh, committed to wanting to follow Jesus, but their commitment was wishy-washy. For one, he seemed to just want to follow Jesus while it was convenient, and Jesus had to warn the man of the cost of following him, saying, you know, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. For the other, who wanted to put following Jesus off in order to attend to a family uh, matter, Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Following Jesus requires full commitment. And while we certainly grow in our ability to do that well, if we are practicing non-commitment, that will affect our ability or even our desire to fully commit to Jesus. The answer to the fear of missing out or the Peter Pan syndrome is to practice commitment. Be faithful to something and or someone. Make a choice and stick with it. Be on time and be present. You know, I've noticed a pattern when teaching uh, basics, which is our class for new people to learn how, uh, more about our church and how to get plugged in. When we inevitably talk about the commi- commitment level for a Van City community, people in the first half stage so often are taken aback by it, at least a little or a lot. <laughs> Quite often, it's a deal breaker for people. But, but for people that I suspect are in the second half stage, there is almost a relief that we ask for commitment. They are thankful for commitment. They appreciate it and celebrate it. Because once you realize commitment breeds stability, security, and trust, whereas a lack of commitment breeds chaos, uncertainty, and frustration, you value it when you see it. For those in the first half stage, do not give in to the temptation of non-commitment. Make appropriate choices to commit and allow those choices to help you mature. Now, for an encouragement for those of you in the first half stage, value the success and affirmation in this stage because it's actually really important. Uh, What I mean is that when you decide to go for a certain degree and after years you graduate smarter, wiser, better prepared for a career, celebrate it. Good job. That was a lot of work. Or if you get a promotion at work, see it as an affirmation of God's gifting in your life as you put those gifts to work. Keep it up. Or if you're newly married, you know, in the honeymoon phase of marriage where there's tons of excitement because everything is so new, uh, this is really uh, important. It's a valuable bonding time in your marriage. Enjoy it. Don't always be looking ahead to the next season of life, looking for the better thing. Or if you're a pessimist, the worst thing. Um, Because quite frankly, what you've learned at school, your career, and your marriage, those things that you've done to get your life together will be tested. And this time in your life is a valuable time to bond with your spouse, to grow in confidence in your identity and calling, and to practice your gifts. There are counter-pressures in our culture to non-committed. You know, if the, if the pendulum swings from non-commitment, it swings over to the pressure to grow up as quickly as you can, to be an adult right now, to get married, to find a house, to live the American dream. And there's a pressure just to get there. 
instead of valuing this season of your life and the process in which it entails. People may sneer at you if you're proud of being promoted to like a lead position at your coffee shop or roll their, their eyes at you when you describe how in love you are with your spouse or want to knock you down a peg when you, you share some knowledge of what you've learned at school. And maybe you do need to have a little dose of humility or tact or perspective, but you are in the midst of doing good work in progressing as an adult and as a follower of Jesus. Keep it going. Now, for those transitioning from the first half stage to the second half stage, here's a warning. As I just said a little bit ago, that uh, our culture is designed to keep us in the first half stage. That is especially true for those in the transition period from the first half to the second half. Our culture's assumption is that uh, we should all have the energy of, of a 21-year-old. You know, our ideal vocation that, you know, delivers total self-fulfillment, advancement, and wealth. You know, the exciting newness of our marriage when, our, uh, when we are on our honeymoon should always be the way it is. We should be able to eat out all the time, exercise rarely, and still maintain the same weight when we graduated high school. And so when we wake up one morning and realize our energy is zapped, our vocation is a bit mundane. Our marriage doesn't seem as exciting as it used to be. And we should probably start putting skim milk in our coffee instead of half and half. It feels like something is wrong. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And so our culture tells us, go for a second honeymoon. Get a, get a new vocation. Get a new spouse. Get a new family. Prioritize your body over your relationships so that you can still add that half and half. Do whatever you need to do to feel 21 again. You know, energetic, hopeful of life's potential and, and with minimal permanent commitments. So the cure for the transition phase between first half and second half in our, in our culture is to do whatever it takes to stay in the first half. And the pursuit of this leaves people increasingly frustrated and hopeless and, and bitter. We weren't made to stay in the first half stage. I used to play in a band when I was between the ages of 18 and 20, and uh, we played in uh, countless uh, bars all along the I-5 corridor from Eugene to Vancouver, B.C. And I remember being 18 years old and always seeing these men and women in their 40s and 50s in these bars on like a Tuesday night trying to have a fun time. And I mean that, like trying really hard. There was a sort of desperation to them that was palpable, even to me, a clueless young man. Um, and man, uh, when they realized I still had my youthful energy, they like both flocked to me and despised me. I was what they wanted to be, you know, young and energetic. And so maybe they could like vampire some of my youthfulness by being around me. But I was also a reminder of what they were not. And, and so they made sure, you know, to always mock, knock me down a few pegs. They were people perpetually desperate to be in the first half stage. And don't give in to this lie. Recommit, refocus, and take steps towards active acceptance. This actually enables a deeper satisfaction with your work, a deeper passion and intimacy with your spouse that builds on the honeymoon phase. It doesn't try to relive it. Now, an encouragement for those of you that are in this transition period. This period of your life provides an opportunity. As you go through this transition, you have the chance to sort through the values you've built up in the first half stage. Often in the first half, we've developed some overly simplistic ways of viewing ourselves, our world, and Jesus. 
some you know, black and white answers, assumptions about what Jesus meant when he said he came to give life to the fullest, you know, the problem of evil, not just in a theoretical sense, but in our own lives. None of this you know, is bad at all. It's all part of the process of growing in our understanding of Jesus as we apprentice him. And it can sound daunting to fully face doubts in your apprenticeship to Jesus. But this is a chance to grow in wisdom, patience, and long-suffering. It's a chance to allow wiser people to speak into your apprenticeship in a fresh way. But it's a process. It can and often does take years. But those years are going to pass either way. The doubts are going to boil beneath the surface either way. It's up to you if you'll face them. If you choose to and are faithful to work through it all with Jesus, you'll come into the second half stage. You will be pursuing mature discipleship. Now, for those, for those of you in the second half stage, here's a warning for you. The challenge of being faithful to our responsibilities and commitments through the long stretch of the second half can lead to something that we would call atrophy. We can get lulled into routines and habits that do not continue our growth as apprentices of Jesus. They do not foster a continued active acceptance and awakenness to life. That, that can lead to a subtle uh, resentment of all the work and responsibilities we have. Rawlheiser says this of uh, that resentment. That is the feeling that can weigh us down for long periods during our adult years and can make us fall asleep to something that we will wake up to only when it is too late, namely that these years when we are relatively young and healthy and, healthy and in charge are the best years of our lives. There is something worse than having too much to do, and that is having nothing to do or too little to do of importance. It's easy to resent, easy to feel our responsibilities as a burden, and that can cause atrophy, a stiffening and hardening of our lives as apprentices of Jesus. Numbing this feeling through entertainment and increasing comfort is the way of our cultures. Look at RVs and cruises. This is like the story of Mary and Martha, where Mary takes the place of the apprentice of Jesus, sitting at his feet and being taught. And Martha feels resentment over being left alone to do all the preparation. The invitation for you is to value the self-sacrificial love of empowering others to get more of a free ride, while also being diligent and creative to take time to sit at Jesus' feet as a learner. But realize, your work in the second half is to continually choose to live out this love, to continually give your life away to your friends and family and community. And you're not just doing this for Jesus. You are given the opportunity to experience a deeper intimacy as you give your life away with Jesus. Now, for an encouragement for those of you in the second half, Rollheiser sees the ability to bless others as a powerful role for those in the second half. Uh, bless is one of those ambiguous churchy words that people say as if everyone knows what it means, but quite frankly, it's a pretty, uh, pretty challenging term to translate from the Greek, let alone did nail down exactly what everyone means by it. Uh, what Rollheiser means by this word, bless, is the ability to acknowledge a person's value and dignity, to speak words of healing and encouragement, to be willing to give part of your life away to them. 
This is a challenge because there's a common feeling of seeing younger people as a threat. You know, their energy, their potential and, and possibilities, the reality that the next generation will replace the preceding one. But instead of allowing this threat to shape how people in the second half interact with those in the first half, the mature disciple chooses to bless. Now, those not in the second half stage can bless others as well, but Rollheiser highlights the larger impact of blessing that flows from those older to those younger, from those in the second half to those transitioning or in the first half. I remember the first year or so of, of Van City. Um, it was, we've been going a little over three years. The first year was uh, nuts as we came into our own, you know, figuring out how to do this thing as Jesus, Jesus led us. Almost every Sunday night presented uh, unique challenges that required all of the energy that we had to give and left a lot of the leaders, myself included, just absolutely wiped out pretty much every single week. Uh, Hannah's dad, Denny, was a pastor and, and had himself planted a church years prior to us planting Van City. He had been a pastor before that as well and knew what it took to keep one of these things going. Uh, when we would give him updates, he was always uh, sympathetic, always encouraging. And so he and Hannah's mom, Lynette, would often come here on a Sunday night after leading their own church's Sunday gathering in the morning, probably often drained from it, and still they would come. It was really cool, but uh, we weren't 100% sure why. I mean, we could guess they loved us and stuff like that, but we didn't, you know, we don't complain. We didn't complain that they were here, uh, but we didn't know the exact reason why. And there were times when something was said during the teaching that we knew that they wouldn't necessarily agree with. I mean, as a family, we had had many good, like, theological discussions and some definite disagreements. And I don't remember how it came up, but a while after they had been coming, we asked why they were doing it. And they said something along the lines of, we just really love seeing what God is doing through you guys. No mention of any disagreements, no complaining about how we do some things differently, no like, hey, I know better, I've been doing this way longer, you could do this and this and this and this. Just speaking a blessing over us. And one time in particular, I remember talking with Denny and he told me, you know, after you got done with one of your teachings and you were doing listening prayer, I felt like God really spoke over me. And he shared, you know, what the, the, he felt the Spirit had said to him. And it really meant a lot to me. It, it still means a lot to me. They weren't coming to be outside observers just watching their kids. They were participants as well, acknowledging what we are doing as valuable and meaningful, not threatened by it, not critical of it, and it blessed me. That's an example of the unique ability of those in the second half stage to bless. To end tonight, I want to read over all of us a blessing that Paul wrote to the church in the city of Philippi. Uh, and like Jesus' words with, with Peter, Paul isn't writing to us, but it is for us. This was written to apprentices of Jesus that, much like us, found themselves in various stages of apprenticeship, who no doubt succeeded and struggled in different ways, and Paul delighting over this mishmash of people who were the church in Philippi encouraged them with these words. He wrote, Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whatever or whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy, for you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue His work until it is finally finished on the day 
Christ Jesus returns. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can connect with us, find more teachings and resources from Van City at vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.